Miss Pat. I would like to invite you now, if you have your Bible, please take it and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, a section of Scripture that's often referred to as the Beatitudes. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word with you this morning, you can feel free to follow along on the screen, or you can borrow a Bible from the back of the pew there in front of you. If you don't own your own copy of Scripture, feel free to take one of those as our gift to you, and we would love to replenish those and let you have that copy just as a blessing from us to you. Regardless of if you have your Bible or not, or whether you're accessing it in digital or print format, if you're physically able, I would ask that you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. I will read for us Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. When I have completed, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and I encourage you to respond with a hearty thanks be to God. Let's look together now at the word of the Lord beginning in Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were Before you, let's look once again at verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We come back to this passage this morning, and as we approach this section of Beatitudes, as we walk into this section of teaching, we remember many of the things that we've already covered. It's called the Beatitudes because of the Latin word for blessed, blessing. It's beatus. So that migrated and transformed its way into what we now have as the Beatitudes. This is the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first of Five major discourses that Matthew gives us from Jesus in his gospel. Remember, as Matthew writes his gospel, the Holy Spirit inspires him to write every word that will be written. And all that is written, he arranges in such a way to show his Hebrew readers that Jesus is the prophet who is greater than Moses. So Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so he organizes Jesus's teachings into five chunks throughout the gospel of Matthew. This is the first one. This also is a fantastic introductory statement. Like if you ever had to write papers for any kind of college class, any sort of essay, 
Always, your professors probably told you that you begin your introduction saying and summarizing everything you're going to say in the paper. And then in your conclusion, you summarize what you just argued through the paper. This is the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes cover every high point that Jesus is going to cover as he goes through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. His whole focus is to draw people away from physical and material focus to an inward focus. When he talks about being blessed, he's not talking about having a lot of money. He's not talking about having a lot of stuff, a lot of land. He's not talking about monetary blessings. He's talking about a state of our spirit. He's talking about a contentment and a joy that is within our souls. He's talking about a status of being favored by God. And what that means is God's love is poured out upon us. And I want us to realize that if any one of us believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, believes in his perfect life, his perfect death and his resurrection, if any of us have placed our faith in that sacrifice that Jesus made for us, then we are highly favored by God. Because God has favored us and loved us enough to allow us to have salvation through His Son. Jesus is pointing to that type of blessedness. And then He's describing Himself. The Beatitudes are so incredible at accomplishing so many goals all at the same time. It introduces and summarizes the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about this, what blessedness will be when he dies and is resurrected. It also talks about who he is. Jesus blesses those who mourn in Matthew chapter 5. So when he said blessed are those who mourn later in his ministry, he then blesses those who mourn. Jesus mourns over Israel in chapter 9 and 23. So he talks about blessed are the mourn. Those who mourn, then he mourns. Blessed are the meek, and Jesus is meek. Matthew describes in 11.29, in Matthew 11.29, how Jesus is meek. Jesus pursues righteousness. He shows mercy. He grants and exhorts purity all through the Gospel of Matthew. He offers peace, and he endures persecution. So he's giving us an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. He's also describing himself. You want to know who Jesus was when he lived on earth? You want to know who Jesus is now? Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. He is epitome. The epitome of who he is is covered in the Beatitudes. It's a beautiful description, but it's also what his disciples will strive to be. None of us will ever be perfect. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, that's not a dig at the Pharisees. I know a lot of times that Jesus puts the Pharisees on the bad side of things. But when Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, he's acknowledging that the people who follow the law most closely in all of the Jewish society were the Pharisees. And the only way for our righteousness to surpass theirs is by his blood. He says the Pharisees have an extreme righteousness and your righteousness must surpass that. So it's not that we have to work for salvation. It's that we have to trust in Jesus and strive to be like he is. So all of these character traits are character traits that we're not going to be perfect at, but it should be our aim and our goal to be like Jesus. It should be our aim and our goal to imitate 
the character and the nature of our Savior while He was here on earth. And Matthew describes Him as meek. And this, this word meek, it, it's kind of a strange word, right? We don't use it very often. How, how often do you give somebody a compliment and you're talking about how meek they are? Because oftentimes meekness is associated very closely with weakness. Meek people are people that we trample over, right? Meek people are passive people. Meek people are not the people who stand up and assert themselves. That's what's so crazy about blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The connotation that we have is the people who will inherit the land, the people who will inherit the earth, the people who will conquer and rule are those who are aggressive, those who take what they want. Those who establish themselves and assert themselves in arrogance and in confidence. And they assert their power and their authority. The meek are the complete opposite of that, are they not? That's what we think of, right? The meek are the people that get trampled over. The meek are the people that say, no, you, you go right ahead. I, I, I'm so sorry. The over-apologizers, those, those are the ones we think about. Weak, innocent, little, puny, meek people. I want you to understand something. The Bible describes Jesus as meek, and that's not who Jesus was. Jesus was not a pushover. Jesus was not some wimpy, effeminate man. Jesus was strong and powerful. But the difference is understanding what meek means in Scripture. There's this Greek word that is translated in English as meek, and it's praus. The word praus is derived in Greek from the way that they trained their war horses. They would go and they would find the wildest and most powerful stallions that they could find. And then they would train them for months and months. They would train them for years upon years to break them of their wildness. Because what the Greeks needed in battle was a praus. They needed a war horse. They needed a horse that wasn't afraid when fiery arrows came flying at it. They needed a horse that didn't shirk away from its duty when spears were thrusted at it. They needed a horse that would keep running even when it was hurt, even when it was bleeding. They needed a horse that could run even when it was injured. They needed the most powerful and strongest of stallions that were available. But they didn't need those stallions throwing them off the, the, their backs before they ever got to the battle, right? If you get a super strong horse, but you can't control it, what's the point of having that powerful, strong horse? If you've got the best horses, you can have the best cavalry if the horses are controlled. If they have great power, and that great power is under control. That's praus. That's meekness. It is being strong and powerful, yet controlled. Think about our Jesus. He was not passive. He was not a pushover. This is the same Jesus who went into the temple courts and saw that they were exchanging money way too far into the court. He saw that they were sinning and that his father's house should be a house of prayer. So he makes a makeshift whip and beats people so severely that they all run. Jesus is one man. They all run out of the temple. This morning's Sunday school lesson, right? They come to arrest Jesus and there is so much power even in his name when they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am he. It poof, blows them back and they have to hit their knees because the very power of God resides in Jesus. And at the same time, 
They blindfolded him and they punched him in the face. And they said, ha, 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 prophesy. Who punched you? Which one of us hit you? If you're so powerful, if you're so awesome, tell us who hit you. They nailed him up on a cross. They left him in his underwear and they put a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him until he couldn't even be recognized. And even after that, they put him on a cross and they said, hey, if you're the Messiah, get yourself down off the cross. Why don't you call down some angels to help you? The irony upon all ironies is they didn't realize Jesus didn't even have to speak. He didn't even have to say a word. At a very thought, he could have commanded all the angels of heaven who I have to believe were waiting on the edge of their seat, begging, please let us come and do away with these evil humans. Please just call us and we'll deliver you. He could have snapped his fingers and everything he had created, Jesus, because all things were created in him and through him and for him and by him and in him all things hold together is what Colossians tells us. He could have snapped his fingers and it had just gone back to nothing. In Genesis 1-1, out of nothing did the Lord create all that is created. He could have returned it to nothing just as easily. He said, let there be light. And light burst into existence. Jesus could have said, I'm done with this. And it all goes away immediately. That's meekness. He held his power at bay. And he willingly volunteered to be a sacrifice for you and for me. Blessed are the meek. Those copy and imitate our Savior. Just because we're strong, just because we have certain jobs, just because we have certain positions in society, just because we have certain amounts of money, just because we live in a certain country, we don't exert our power in a way to rule over others. We are meek. We're very controlled in when we exert the power that we have. We have the power of the Holy Spirit residing within us. We live Controlled lives, controlled by the Spirit. Don't miss that in this analogy, the horse needed to be controllable. Who's controlling the horse? The rider. Jesus submitted himself to the Father, right? That's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us. That he emptied himself and became humble, being willing and obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was willing to let the Father be the one directing the war horse, the meek war horse. You and I must be the ones to step aside and say, Jesus, you be the rider. I'll be the horse. You direct me and tell me where to go. You tell me when to assert myself and when to be passive and humble. You tell me how to stand up for your kingdom and fight for your name and your glory and your honor. You tell me and show me and that's what I will do. You give me your power. You put your power in me and work through me. But I'm going to let you be the one that's in control. I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to be meek like my Savior was meek. And I just wondered today, how many of us take that posture? Some of us hear the word meek and think it's insulting. But how many of us truly, week in and week out, morning by morning, wake up and say, Lord, help me to be meek today. Let your power control me and you direct me where you would have me to go. You say what you would have me to say through me today, Lord. How many of us humble ourselves and are willing to step aside and let Jesus take control?
Meekness is essential for the Christian life. We've all seen those little car tags, right? Jesus is my co-pilot. I mean, I get what they're going for. It's so nice. It's, it's so good. It, it, they're, they're aiming for Jesus is in the cockpit with me, and, and, and he, we're flying this plane together. But see, that, there's a little bit of a problem there. Meekness would imply that Jesus is the pilot, and we're the co-pilots. Jesus is my pilot, and I, I, just, I just get the blessing of sitting in the cockpit with him, and he lets me be up here and help fly the plane. But he's the one in control. I wonder this morning, have, have you given that kind of control to Jesus in your life? If you have, when was the last time that's how you started your day? Say, Jesus, I want you to be in command. I want you to be in control. We're, we're going to move from this sermon time because I told you earlier, the focus of this message, the focus of this service is our worship through communion. And so I want all of us to try to approach this table with that same attitude of humbling ourselves and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm just a horse, all right? You put a bit in my mouth and you direct me where you would have me to go. Lord Jesus, you be in control. Help me to be humble and approach this table with a contrite, and penitent spirit. I, I, I do want to talk to us for just a minute about why that's so important. And I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you have your Bible... Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. While you guys are turning there, there's some special things that we're going to do as we observe communion this morning. And so I want to ask if the deacons and the choir would go ahead and make their way to their places. And we're going to talk briefly about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and how we are to approach the Lord's table and why it is so vitally important. And then we will read together Psalm 51 verses 1 through 12 as a confession of our sin to the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So verse 28 says, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Folks, I'm not trying to be cruel or, or mean to anyone, but I would ask, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pass these plates here in just a moment, just pass that plate to the next person beside you. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then Respectfully, I would ask, don't participate in this sacred act of worship. This morning, we're going to read Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12, and I want to encourage you to use that as the time that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine our hearts so that we might not eat and drink judgment on ourselves, so that we might approach this table in a worthy manner. And so if you're physically able, I would ask, would you please stand once again? Would you read with me as we read together Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12? And then I'll pray for us, and we'll begin our time of communion. Would you read with me? Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, thank you that in meekness you were willing to submit to the will of the Father. Lord, thank You that even though You could have called down legions upon legions of angels, You chose, Lord, to take our death, to pay our penalty, to die in our place. So, Father, we approach this communion table and we ask that You forgive us once again, that You purge us with Your hyssop, and that we might approach this table in the same meekness that you approach the cross. Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken and for your blood that was poured out to cover our sins. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be with us and move in this place and stir in our hearts as we worship you through the bread and through the cup. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.